Thank you for listening to Made to Be, a podcast exploring the surprising professional paths of extraordinary women in business. I'm Kristen Berman, co-founder and CEO of Philly Made Creative, a marketing and media production agency. Listen as I facilitate powerful conversations with women who are masters of their crafts. Learn about their journeys and just what it took to become who they were made to be. You know, when, when you're a victim of abuse, you learn to compartmentalize. You learn to disassociate. And so it was very easy for me to package the anxiety and put it away while I was at work and really focus on work and uh, become the person that I had to be in the office and then save the falling apart piece for when I got home. So that was, uh, I, I think that was my survival. Was it the best technique? Probably not. It took me a lot of years to reassociate uh, myself together into that one person that could then feel authentically again. Um, yeah, so that's really how I survived all that. After surviving years of domestic violence, she knew she needed to do something to help victims be heard. Today, you'll hear from Sherry Curtical, CEO and founder of Victim's Voice, a legally admissible way to document instances of abuse in a way that is safe, secure, and private. Sherry shares openly about her past and how that led her to transmuting her pain into developing a tool that gives victims a voice. She recreates memories filled with courage, success, and inspiration. Find out how Sherry broke through her own personal limitations and discovered who she was made to be. Today, I want to introduce Sherry Curtical. She is the founder and CEO of Victim's Voice. Sherry, thank you so much for being on Made to Be. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't you let us know what, what is your role and what is Victim's Voice? I am the founder and CEO of Victim's Voice. It is a mobile app that works like a digital diary that allows victims to record each incident of abuse, and it meets the strict legal standards of court admissibility. And, and what does that mean, court admissibility? So when you think of people who are going through abusive situations, sometimes they'll take screenshots of their social media, um, they'll save notes to their phone. Um, but as we all know, uh, Facebook, any of those social media are not hack proof. Um, they've been hacked several times, so that would not hold up in court. Uh, when you take screenshots, if you're in an abusive relationship and you're keeping notes and screenshots in your phone and your abuser smashes your phone, then where are all your notes? So ours is a secure encrypted database that holds all that information and gives complete control to the victim uh, if and when they're ready to release it into a court. And it meets all those strict standards um, known as the Daubert standard of admissibility. And, and how long have you had Victim's Voice? When did you start it? So it actually started uh, conceptually when my then 10-year-old daughter decided that she was tired of her friend being picked on and she wanted to build, she wanted to do something for her friend. So she built an anti-bullying mobile app for her science fair project. At 10 years old? Yes. Wow. <laughs> it was called the Zebra app. It stood for Zoe Ending Barriers in Reporting Adversity. Uh, needless to say, she won the Mercer County Science and Engineering Fair Elementary Division. She was then asked to speak at a developers conference out on the West Coast. 
And that was kind of the spark, uh, looking at the competition that was out there, what was already on the marketplace, uh, where were they succeeding, where were they failing. That coupled with the fact that I am a survivor of 29 years of domestic violence myself, really put that idea that domestic violence was an underserved market. Something needed to be done. Less than 2% of all reported cases get prosecuted. And that to me is just unacceptable. So for many years, the idea was conceptualized, built a prototype, worked with a lot of attorneys and nonprofits to get it right. And then the end of June, 2018, we filed our C corporation and went full throttle. Wow. Yeah. So this is one of those topics that I feel like you've, you've said people may not have that sort of outlet to, to deal with or to talk about. What was it that for you that you wanted to really become a voice for this? One of the things that really struck me was um, last year, our president had a rally in Mississippi around the time of the Dr. Ford case. And he stood up in, the, in front of that group and he said she couldn't remember when and she couldn't remember where. And it dawned on me that as angry as I was about the whole situation, um, he was absolutely right. He was 100% right. That case never would have held up in a court of law. It's the details. When I do workshops, I ask people to close their eyes and think of a traumatic experience. And uh, especially when they were younger, something, maybe they fell out of a tree or um, they got beat up by a bully or something that really affected them. And then I ask them to open their eyes and tell me what color shirt were all the people in the room wearing? What was the weather like? What day of the week was it? What exact time of the day did it happen? These are the types of questions that you're going to get answered in a court. And if you can't answer them, then they can't corroborate the facts and your case is thrown out. 77% of cases don't get reported because of fear of retaliation. They are afraid of what the judicial system will do to them. Out of the 23% of the cases that do get reported, 80% get kicked out because of lack of evidence. And then from there, that two, less than 2% again. So what could I do to move the needle? Um, I looked at the cases that I was involved in personally where I was the victim, and I, none of my cases would have made it to court. Um, my father was arrested for, what, 15 years of abuse. He got six weekends in jail. Six weekends? Six weekends. What does that mean? That means that he was released out during the week so that he could go to work. Yes. Um, so something like that where it changed my entire life. It changed the trajectory of my future until I took back control. That is just unacceptable. Um, and we have to give victims the ability to get into court, to be believed, to be heard, and for their evidence to be shown. What have been some of the challenges for you as you've been building this the last couple of years? Well, the easy part was uh, getting the the standards in place <laughs> because you those think that are, was the challenging uh, well, one. No, because those are finite steps. Uh, really, the tough part is getting the word out to the victims. 
uh, recently wrote a blog post called The Consummate Actor. Um, that blog post covered the fact that victims do a, an extremely good job at hiding that anything is going on. It's still, even with the Me Too movement, uh, the Me Too movement has brought forward a lot of the, the big public uh, faces of this going on, but the day-to-day domestic violence still isn't talked about. It's still hidden in the shadows, and the victims do, do everything possible to hide it. 81% of females and 43% of males in the U.S. will face sexual harassment or abuse in their lifetime, yet you sit in a room and you think about that statistic and how many people can you look at and identify as being victims. So really getting in front of those people, um, making sure that they understand that their anonymity, their security is our number one priority. In most cases, we won't even know who our clients are. We just won't know. Uh, we've put things in place to make sure that we don't know and that their, uh, their security and their anonymity is our priority. So whereas on some platforms it may be, um, like we've heard about the data breaches like you talked about for Facebook or some of these other platforms, um, you know, I've even heard about apps and that, that data being held hostage Yes. Essentially. Yes. Uh, and, and what would happen if data like that had gotten out? It could be a life or death situation. Um, even having an app on the phone is potentially dangerous. So we've put forth a lot of steps to ensure that there's a level of anonymity, even when they download the app from the app store or Google play. Um, there are a lot of, of procedures that we've put in place to ensure that their, you know, protection is our number one priority. Mm. Yeah. So this seems like a really passionate um, project for you, something that really means a lot for you. Is your background in tech? How, how did you get started with that? I've worked in the tech industry. I don't code. <laughs> I just put that out there. I leave that to my CTO. He's fantastic. Um, yeah, so I have worked in the entrepreneurial space and the tech space for a very long time. Um, I've surrounded myself with people who are a whole lot smarter than I am, uh, which helps. <laughs> um, but yes, this is a, a passion for me. We are a for-profit social enterprise, but we are a social enterprise. And so just making sure that all the pieces are in the right place, the right people are in the right place, um, that's really what drives me forward. Yeah. So now you, you've told me before that you had experience in both the music industry and you also did uh, some work in an international uh, sort of marketing company. Can you tell us a little bit about your path and your career and what really got you here? So, um, because I had come right out of high school my father had been arrested my life kind of fell apart at that point. Um, focusing on college was, I went in, I went into college, um, and after the first year with a 1.0 realized that, okay, this isn't my path. So I am the anomaly and I don't recommend it. Uh, I recommend going to college. Just let me put that on the record. 
But uh, for me, it was really working in places where I felt safe, encouraged, and uh, there was always a challenge. Um, I get bored kind of easy. (laughs) Probably the entrepreneurial part of me. The music business was always changing. It was fantastic. I was in my 20s at the height of the music business right before it started crashing. So when was that? uh, (laughs) We'll skip that year. (laughs) I'm the oldest millennial you'll ever meet. (laughs) But it was really exciting. It was fun. I worked in in South Florida and then I worked in Manhattan and it was just amazing. Uh, At the same time, though, I was going through a separation and a divorce. So while work was really great, home life was, was really stressful, really filled with a lot of anxiety. Um, can I, can I ask you, how did you deal with that? I feel like, you know, as people who are balancing sort of the work life, work and life, how did you handle that, that time in your life? What was that like for you? A lot of therapy, some prescribed drugs, (laughs) uh, you know, when, when you're a victim of abuse, you learn to compartmentalize, you learn to disassociate. And so it was very easy for me to package the anxiety and put it away while I was at work and really focus on work and uh, become the person that I had to be in the office and then save the falling apart piece for when I got home. So that was, uh, I, I think that was my survival. Was it the best technique? Probably not. It took me a lot of years to reassociate uh, myself together into that one person that could then feel authentically again. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. that's really how I survived all that. Were there people at that, um, at that time, coworkers that you confided in, that you trusted to talk about this? Or was it really something you kept private? Uh, I did learn to confide, but in a handful of people, maybe one or two people that I felt were safe to confide with, uh, I didn't want it to become who I was. Mm -hmm. So I worked very hard to make sure that, um, you know, those one or two trusted people, it was almost like if something happens to me, this is who I really am. So, you know, Mm -hmm. and that was my backup safety. Uh, Other than that, no, Mm -hmm. most people didn't know. Do you find that in, in your work, that's that's a typical uh, story for people where it's really kept mostly private? Absolutely. In most cases, a lot of people don't tell anyone what's going on. And so that becomes the problem when they do come forward and say, well, my you know, overly charming, significant other has been, you know, berating me and abusing me then all their friends around them say, well, how could this be? And they don't believe them. Mm-hmm. It makes the unbelievability part easy to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a catch-22. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Made to Be, a podcast featuring extraordinary women in business produced by Philly Made Creative. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you believe you or somebody you know should be featured as a guest, please email madetobe at phillymadecreative.com. And so when you were going through this time in your life, uh, at what point did you switch careers or, or make a jump in your career? 
everything kind of had a, a, a bridge. So I was in the music business and in the music business, co-op advertising is everything, or at least it was. So when that industry started to collapse, um, I jumped over to a local newspaper group and started their co-op advertising program and built it to a huge department. Um, and then from there, a international trade show organizer company recognized what I was doing and um, had me come over to their company. So I got recruited, which was kind of exciting, right? <laughs> so I worked there for many years. It was really exciting. The first time I'd been overseas, um, that was a whole different level of anxiety, uh, intimidation, um, imposter syndrome. Um, Let's talk about that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you're you're at this new company for you. This this jump in careers a little bit, yeah. and you are now working in an international scale for trade show organizer, and they put you in charge of of what. So I had two roles there. I started off in their publications department, and I um, worked to put together the U.S. publications for um, for this trade show. This trade show was called CBIT. It was the world's largest IT trade show in Hanover, Germany, every year. And back when I was involved, it was, again, at its height. Uh, they had 27 exhibition halls. The smallest one was about the size of Javits Center. Mm. It had over 800,000 attendees. It was a seven-day show. It was crazy. Once a year? Once a year. Wow. Well, yeah. And yeah. more than that, we'd be yeah. dead. <laughs> but so I put together certain pavilion guides that were U.S.-based. Um, and then from there, because I loved tech so much, I found a woman who was working with the Palm Pilot. Yes, I'm starting to age myself here. Um, and we put together the first Palm Pilot guide. And then I got to work on global emerging technologies. And one of my most exciting uh, ventures was I brought in, our, our biggest competition was international CES. Happened around the same time. U.S. companies didn't want to send their uh, their organizations, their delegation over to Germany, they just figured that they would send their European counterparts. So sales was a real challenge. So what I did was I organized, um, sponsored by Samsung, uh, to have the two keynotes live simulcast in between the two shows. So I worked with the organizers of International CES, and they had just installed the big jumbotrons at CBIT, on the fairgrounds, and so we simulcast the uh, the keynotes back and forth. So, what was that like? I feel like people, when they think about competition and their biggest competitors, that they wouldn't necessarily uh, co-market together or share share in an experience together. How did you make that happen? I've always worked from the mindset of um, competition is good, and usually you're not an extreme. Uh, competitor, unless, of course, you're copying someone's idea. And there's always ways to collaborate. And there's a saying of keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. So if you can find a way to work together for the betterment of both sides, then why wouldn't you? You were talking about imposter syndrome. What what was that like? What was expected of you? And, and, and how did you uh, handle that for yourself? 
Um, there were some workshops that I attended where they talked about, I guess years ago, I needed kind of a break from the corporate scene. So I worked for Starbucks for a few years. Great company did their fast track uh, external hire program where eight weeks and they take you through the entire training and then they give you a store to run. Um, I probably learned more from working at Starbucks than any other employer that I ever had. Mm -hmm. Their internal training is bar none the best. Um, management training constantly, learning how to read P&Ls and comps and, and how to manage your inventory and, and a lot of the softer skills of, of dealing with people. And one of the things that they, they really preached is that uh, you need to empower your team. You need to come at this from a place of servant leadership. Um, and you really need to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you so you can do your job and let them do theirs. Empower them to be better than you. And that really stuck with me. Uh, the people that I have in place now are, you know, my social media manager doesn't let me anywhere near social media and with good reason. <laughs> We've seen exponential growth on our on our pages since I've gotten out and he's taken over. Um, you know, my CTO, I, I don't code and he talks about things that I just nod my head. Okay, okay. You know, I understand enough. I tell him that his job security is well intact. I know enough to break things. Um, you know, every role that we have in our company, they are professionals. Uh, they've been brought on to do their job, uh, not for me to tell them what to do. I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. And so I guess really working in the startup community has made me realize that we're all at some point suffering from imposter syndrome. And the sooner you can say, okay, we're all human we all don't really know what we're doing and we're figuring it out as we go and we're hiring people to make sure we do it the right way. Um, yeah, that's, that's it. And, and other people who may be experiencing that, uh, imposter syndrome as well, but at the same time they're skilled and they, they yes. are able to fulfill on it. I think the first moment that I realized that I really wasn't a total idiot in my space was that, um, I did a white paper with uh, a vendor that I've worked with and we did this presentation and when we walked away and people were flooding the front of the room to ask us questions, I was like, okay, I've got this. I can do this. I, you know, I'm not a complete idiot. I know what I'm talking about and I can help others. Mm. Yeah. And then was that that self-talk that you had that you're an idiot or were there other words that you would say to yourself? Um, what the heck am I doing? Um, how did I get here? Oh my God, am I going to fall flat? <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. And, and have you been able to since sort of shift that self-talk or shift that mindset for yourself? Or do you still battle with that? I have a new technique. If I feel anxiety about a particular area, I go out and seek a mentor and have that mentor help me through it. Um, and I've had to fire some mentors. I had one mentor in particular that used to make me cry. And I said, this is not healthy. So I found a new one that really helped me. And, um, you know, building your network, uh, finding mentors is, I can't even express how important that is. Absolutely. That's probably the one thing that is most important. Hmm. 
I've heard that a, a few times too. What are some ways that you recommend people go and find mentors? I use LinkedIn a lot. Yeah. Uh, or I'll ask. I'll ask people around me, um, this is the area that I really need help with. Who do you recommend that I talk to? Who do you know that's really good in this and personable, um, you know, that fits kind of my style? And can you do an introduction? Or just reaching out on LinkedIn and saying, you know, I need help in this area. You look really smart. Would you be willing to mentor me through this specific problem? If it's, I will give a word of caution that if you are asking someone to mentor you, be specific about what it is that you need. These people have careers of their own. They don't have time to just necessarily sit and be your friend 24-7. So go with a specific agenda, ask for specific help. And then from there, you'll probably learn a lot more along the way. Mm. Yeah. Was it easy for you to ask for help when you knew you needed it? I have been asking for help for a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, from, from being that 17 year old kid that needed help getting through, uh, testimony to the, um, the person that needed help looking for a job that uh, needed help figuring out how to start a company that, um, you know, sitting in a session, hearing the term cap table, what the heck is a cap table, you know, and now I'm living in them. So reaching out to people to find out, uh, even, you know, my attorney that, um, you know, has a significant fee attached to it, uh, asking him, okay, I can't afford to ask you all these questions. What book do you recommend? What helped you, what book do you turn to when you need just general questions or, uh, you know, that you related to when you were going through school that I can understand. And he did, he recommended a wonderful book uh, because then I'm a better client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you come to him even more well-educated and, and are able to speak about your problems that he might be able to support you through, but you don't have to go back to him with every little thing. Right. My, you know, his, um, his job with me depends on my success. If I fail, he's not employed by me anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's in his best interest that I succeed mm-hmm. and that I be knowledgeable and educated in the areas. I don't have a college degree, but I've probably taken more online courses and sat in more college classrooms than most college educated people, just because self-education for me is more directed at what I need to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that, um, is that something that you feel you've always practiced or was it a, a new thing when you started your own business? I've always had an insatiable desire to learn. They say when you go through a traumatic experience that you stop growing. Um, and then it, it, that's kind of the age where you stop internally. And so for me, pro- almost it could be to a fault. I feel like I've, ha- I've had to catch up. I've lost all those years. And so now I want to make the most of every moment that I'm here and learn as much as I can and help as many people as I can. Yeah. You're listening to Made to Be, a podcast featuring extraordinary women in business produced by Philly Made Creative. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you believe you or somebody you know should be featured as a guest, please email madetobe at phillymadecreative.com. 
you mind if we go back and if you could tell us a little bit about your childhood? I think that sometimes gives some light into into who you are as a person and what you've, uh, whether it's your successes then or what your interests were and how are they connected now? Um, chunks of my childhood I don't remember, and that's probably what's helped me survive. Uh, but I was, uh, I did grow up summers on my grandmother's horse farm, and that was my passion. That's where I could lose myself. I was probably one of the few kids that didn't mind cleaning the horse manure out of the stalls <laughs> and riding the poop trailer, uh, you know, to the, to the big poop pile. <laughs> How old were you at this Singing point? at the top of my lungs, you know, <laughs> um, covered in flies. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> but, it, you know, for me, horses were everything. Um, and when I did go to college, I actually went as a double major, business administration and equestrian studies. Wow. So um, I thought I wanted to be a vet until I had to help castrate a colt in the middle of a raining field, and I passed out. And I decided that was the end of my vet career. (laughs) So, yeah, um, I've always been a perfectionist because in our house uh, growing up, if you drank milk out of a glass and you didn't rinse it out, that was a beating. Mm -hmm. Um, If anything was out of place, that was a beating. Mm So I've always, always gone way above and beyond to be extremely prepared, go way above expectations. Um, everything has to be meticulous and I'm still somewhat to that, you know, those, those terms, I over prepare for everything as much as possible. I sit here with my notes, Mm -hmm. um, but um, I'm learning to let go of some of that. And part of that is learning to be a better servant leader and allowing other people to do things and not have to be in complete control. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the experience. It's, it's, you were talking about the everything is you know perfect and meticulous. And then on the other hand, hiring people who are smarter than you because you've hired them to do this job. So what has that balance been like for you, that, that sort of push and pull of control? Um, I've liked giving up control. (laughs) It's nice. It's nice to say, you know, as a team, we had our first team meeting last month and, and we're having another one tonight. Um, but it was nice to sit around the table and talk about what our goals are and what our, you know, go to market strategy is and everybody understands what needs to be done. And then, okay, you own that piece. Um, here's the expectations. Here's the, the top tier deadlines that we have to meet. We need to constantly be in communication with each other to make sure that if something doesn't happen, it's going to affect all of us. So we need to all be on the same page. Yeah, this is, this is exciting, but this couldn't, I couldn't have done all this on my own. Mm-hmm. I realize that, um, this has been a team effort and I have a magnificent team, um, They've really helped me grow professionally, personally. Um, yeah, I'm just very humbled and appreciated by everything that they've done. Mm. Yeah. Now, this is this podcast is geared towards women in business. That's who we interview. Mm-hmm. And how have you seen being a, a female in this industry, in the tech industry specifically, how has that impacted you either positive or negatively? 
I know what the statistics are. I've been very fortunate that that has not been my experience. Now, I say that, but I'm not a developer. I don't sit and code. I'm not looking for coding jobs up against, you know, the Silicon Valley white bread males. Um, But I can say that I have been very fortunate. Um, I'm also very assertive. I don't take no for an answer. I get really creative on finding ways to get done what I want to get done or need to get done. Um, And I think uh, if women's mindsets can change into not being afraid to be assertive, um, I think we'll make better strides. Mm. Now, it's not all that, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it has a huge part to do with that. Mm -hmm. I think there still is a lot of intimidation Um, I can think of an experience where I had a boss that really tried to intimidate me. He was the CEO of the company. And what were some things that he would do? He was having a a conversation with me over the phone. I worked from home and uh, really berating my boss and just not being professional at all. And I took a deep breath and said, this is not a professional conversation. If you have something constructive to contribute, I'm all ears. Um, but if you don't, then I think this conversation needs to end. Mm. And I paused and there was that really seemingly long, uncomfortable silence where, you know, you need to just stay silent to hear what he says. (laughs) And he didn't say anything. And so I spoke up and I I counted to five very slowly. (laughs) And I said, then I see there's nothing more to be said. I'm hanging up now. Goodbye. And I hung up mm. and I, what was that like? Uh, I was terrified. Um, I s- broke out into a cold sweat. I left my phone in my office. I went and put my running clothes on and I ran a 5k. Mm. And when I got back, there were three messages on my phone and he never spoke to me again, mm. but I still have my job. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't speak to him anymore. Mm-hmm. He would speak indirectly mm. through other people, mm-hmm. which fine, you know, if right. you can't be, if you can't be respectful, you know, by the time it gets to me, the messages change slightly and, mm-hmm. and people knew where I stood. Mm-hmm. I regained a lot of self-respect at that moment, realizing that I did have that power, that I could say this is unacceptable and I won't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. And that was really a big turning point for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there are women listening who have that experience of wanting to say that, and maybe they have, but what was it that gave you the courage to speak up for yourself? I really got to the point where I said, okay, I'm probably going to get fired here. Is it worth me keeping this job and being undermined and undervalued and degraded on a daily basis or can I take the unemployment and go find a better job mm-hmm. that, you know, every, they say everything happens for a reason. And that was that moment where if it was meant to be, I was going to get let go. And if it wasn't meant to be, it was going to change the dynamics in the office for me. Mm-hmm. And the latter was true. Mm-hmm. But I was prepared for either, you know, I kind of did that, uh, you know, worst case scenario plan for the best, you know, situation in my head. And I was prepared to go forward either way. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that you necessarily planned 
you know, weeks or months for. No, that was kind of on the fly conversation that I had in my head. I seem to have a lot of conversations in my head. (laughs) Don't we all, I guess. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I think talking yourself through a lot of situations, uh, stepping back. I know if I had stayed in the office, I would have taken his call. Mm -hmm. So it was really important for me to get away from the phone and not be sucked back in. Mm. That's such a, a typical abusive uh, dynamic what is, is what to is get that? sucked back in mm. and, you know, oh, I'm sorry, or, you know, we can work this out. And then you get back in that relationship and then it just digresses immediately again. Um, on all levels of abusive relationships, whether it's through a friend, a work, um, intimate partner, whatever, that is a typical pattern. Mm. Yeah. I want to just examine a little bit when you talk about abuse, you know, I think some people have a picture in their head of what that means. How, how do you define it or how do you uh, encourage other people to consider that? So there's many forms of abuse. There is, um, emotional abuse, which can be complete neglect. Um, you know, the silent treatment where you're, uh, intimate partner just ignores you, doesn't talk to you, um, and punishes you through the silent treatment. Um, they don't allow you to have friends. Um, they belittle you with words. That's the, you know, the emotional and psychological abuse. You're worth nothing. Um, you're so stupid. Uh, you'll never amount to anything kind of speak. Um, there's the physical abuse, which is the one that people most recognize. And that is, you know, someone with bruises on their body or, um, you know, broken bones. Uh, I've seen some horrific, uh, images that, you know, just make you want to cry. Um, and you wonder how these people survive. Um, then there's the sexual abuse. Um, and this takes place with intimate partners. Um, we're hearing more about this on the news, especially with the escape of the woman from Saudi Arabia that went to Canada. Um, you know, where they're, they're being forced or pressured into having sexual relations, um, when they don't want to, um, And then there's financial abuse. People don't recognize that, but 99% of domestic violence victims are actually victims of financial abuse as well. And that means that they either don't have access to funds or all their funds are being controlled or watched. And so any expenditures that can't be explained, um, then they, it falls into that other form of abuse. Mm. Um, it could be that they're being harassed at work or being made to not work. Um, so there are lots of different forms. It's not just the bruises on the face. Mm. Yeah. I think that's important for people to really consider. Like you, you've said, there are so many forms of abuse and people may not realize that they are a victim in it or that, or even that they are participating in it. I mean, have, has that been a case where, you know, we, we often talk about the victim side, but what about the, the perpetrator side? Is it that they're knowingly, I'm going to abuse my partner or is it something else? I think sometimes with the psychological, um, it gets a little fuzzy, especially if that's the environment that they were raised um, and that becomes their expectation. Uh, all of it centers around control. 
Um, and usually that need for control is because they feel a lack of control themselves. Um, I am not a psychologist. Uh, so these are, you know, it, it, this is information that is readily available through uh, valid websites that, you know, you can, uh, there's a lot of nonprofits out there that can help through all of these specific definitions and such. Um, but I know from my own experience, usually those that are doing the abuse are you know, lost themselves and this is their way of controlling the situation. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, this, this can get a little heavy, but let's make it a little lighter. I think how, how do you keep things light in your, in your day to day and with what you're doing? So for me, working in a nonprofit space or being in the mix of it is just too emotional for me. So this is my way from, you know, from a business perspective, this is my way of being able to contribute um, and not have to necessarily be in, in the heat of it every moment. On a personal level, uh, I love to paint. Um, I, I, acrylic. Um, yeah, I, all kinds of stuff. I used to do some cartooning back in the day. Uh, now I do, I seem to be doing everyone's pets. Um, <laughs> are they sending pictures of their dogs yes, and their cats? Yes. yes. <laughs> What are some things that you do daily that you, um, whether it's a daily ritual routine that you sort of keep in check for yourself, whether it's your stress level or sort of staying grounded? I love spending time with my family. Um, I have an amazing husband now and uh, a, a great uh, teenager. Yes, I can use both those words in the same sentence. Um, and you know, they really help keep me grounded. Um, they, they definitely keep help me grounded. Uh, but I do take time to read, um, in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, find some time to read something. Um, I find some alone time when I can just not have work and just kind of recollect my own thoughts and be my own person. Uh, that's really important in the space is to not lose myself in everything that I'm doing. Mm. I am really busy. Uh, but I also like to volunteer, and I volunteer at a local farm called, shout out here, Fernbrook Farms. It's in Chesterfield, New Jersey, and they have an environmental education center, and I organize their 5K farm run that happens in the fall every year. And so for me, even though, yeah, it's work, I got to do the website, I got to do the sponsor kits, um, all that stuff, that's not really work. That's a lot of fun, and it's so much fun to go out there on that cool fall day and watch people come back just completely covered in mud. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So before we wrap up, do you have any last pieces of advice for women in business? Network, network, network. I can't express that enough. Um, you can learn all the stuff in the world, but it's really your network that moves you forward and helps you out, whether it's to help you up or you to help them um, just to be there to support each other. Um, and, and, you know, I used to belong in a, to a professional organization called BNI and their motto was givers gain. Um, when you network, go at it from a givers gain. Nobody wants to take the business card from someone and be force fed a sales pitch. Uh, always offer something first before you ask for anything. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Great advice. Yep. And Sherry, where can people find out about Victim's Voice? 
Right now, you can find us on social. Our social tag is Victims Voice App. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're on LinkedIn. Um, we're getting on Snapchat, although I haven't figured out how to use that yet. <laughs> <laughs> My teenager's teaching me. Um, we're also on the web at victimsvoice.app. All right. And when people go to the uh, Google Play or the Apple App Store, what are they searching for? Victim's Voice? Yes. Victim's Voice. All right. Sherry Critical, the founder and CEO of Victim's Voice. Sherry, thank you so much for being on Made to Be. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. (laughs) Made to Be is a production of Philly Made Creative. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this episode, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or Anchor, and stay tuned for future episodes. 